Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. My name is Simon Sahlstrom, and I am a recent graduate of the MPhil in Economics at Oxford, and I'm now working on a charity called the Directed Development Foundation. Today, I am happy to invite Johannes Haushofer. Johannes is currently a full professor of economics at Stockholm University. He's previously been at Princeton and is the founder of the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. He's also uh, written extensively about unconditional cash transfer, and that is the topic of today. Now, we'll be discussing your paper titled The Comparative Impact of Cash Transfers and a Psychotherapy Program on Psychological and Economic Wellbeing from uh, 2020 with uh, Mudida and Shapiro. So for those who haven't yet read this paper, could you briefly explain what it is about? Uh, yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. So this is, uh, like you said, a paper together with uh, Jeremy Shapiro and Robert Mudida, and we study the impact of a brief psychotherapy program that was developed by the WHO and lasts for about five weeks and is delivered by trained lay people. And we deliver it in rural Kenya to a sample of relatively low-income farmers. And we have a second intervention that's a cash transfer that's a little over $1,000 nominal, uh, and we deliver that to a similar population and we compare the impact of the two programs as well as a combined intervention to a control treatment. Lovely. Thank you so much. So one of the things that you found was that this very successful previous psychological intervention set in the same setting did not have any effect on well-being. Were you surprised by this result? And, and how, how do you try to explain this? Yeah, we were surprised. We were really hoping that it would generate impacts. And as you say, it doesn't generate impacts even on the outcomes it's really supposed to affect, which is psychological well-being. And that was surprising because it had been shown to be effective in very similar circumstances previously. So we were surprised and perhaps also a little bit disappointed by that. And so how do you explain that or perhaps more generally, what do you do as a field researcher when you get these kind of surprises? Yeah, I think the thing to do is to dig into mechanisms using the variables that you have in the survey and then try to identify them or exclude ones that seem less likely based on the data that you have. And so what we find here is that, for example, it's not the case that the intervention is more effective for severely distressed people. That was one possible reason for it not being effective on average, because we delivered it to a general population sample. It might have been that it works for the ones who are really very distressed, doing quite badly, and it doesn't work for the rest. And so on average, you get a zero. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the reason. It doesn't work for anybody. Even if you look at the most severely distressed people at baseline, they aren't helped by this program either. And so gradually we rule out a number of different channels like this. And I think the most likely possibility for why it didn't work here is that it was a relatively diffuse program. It wasn't targeted specifically towards depressed people. It wasn't even, um, you know, like I said, targeted to, you know, severely distressed people 
or like in the previous trial to people who had experienced intimate partner violence. Rather, it was deployed as a general, let's help you deal with your life problems kind of program. And it might be that that was just too diffuse and weak to generate effects. That's our current best hypothesis. Mm. Okay, so now let's take a little bit step back here and uh, let us ask you about the inspiration of this. Uh, so could you tell me about how you came to work on this project with your two co-authors and how did the project start? So I've long had an interest in the bidirectional or potentially bidirectional relationship between economic and psychological well-being. And in the early days of my interest, this took the form of asking whether poverty has particular psychological consequences, like, for example, causing stress, and whether that then leads to changes in economic decision making that potentially exacerbate poverty. So, for example, if stress makes you very impatient or risk averse, that might not be good for your long term well-being because you don't make investments that might be profitable. And then later on, I got interested in mental health because it seemed like there, there might be very large effects to be had there. Certainly, the correlational literature is very strong, suggesting that people who have um, bad mental health outcomes also have bad economic outcomes and vice versa. And so I thought that that was a very plausible hypothesis that when people are depressed, that makes it really hard to earn an income. And conversely, when people are poor, that makes it very likely that they'll end up being depressed. And so I had an interest in studying this. And then it was actually Jeremy who started working with the partner organization uh, that we had for this psychotherapy intervention. And he raised the money both for the psychotherapy and for the cash transfers. Um, and we've done a lot of work together. And so we did the study together as well. And then uh, Robert has been a longtime friend and partner in, in Kenya. And so he came on board to provide a local perspective, as well as he's a very good economist, a general perspective. And so that's how that project was born. Okay, okay. So you mentioned that you were able to work with this large international NGO that do these interventions. Um, so do you have, well, first of all, how, how was this partnership formed? Was it, was it difficult? And do you have any general advice when it comes to forming these types of collaborations with outside organizations to conduct experiments? So I can only say very little about this because it was really Jeremy who built that relationship. Um, from what I understand, it wasn't actually all that hard. They were very open and willing to work together. Um, and that's not always the case with partners. And in terms of general advice, I think something that works well is to build up trust very slowly. So the temptation can be as a researcher to go to an organization and say, hey, we want to evaluate your program using a randomized trial. And that's very scary for an organization, uh, both because they're not used to being tested like this, uh, because they often think randomized controlled trials are unfair to their participants. And so they often shy away from it. And I think the way to get them on board is often to slowly build a trusting relationship. And that usually starts, or the best way to start that, I think, is to go to them and listen first, hear what their questions are, what they want to understand about their programs, what they need help with, uh, and help them with those things. And in the beginning, that often might take the form of very simple analysis on existing data. I think many organizations are grateful for just a scatter plot or a bar chart um, to help them understand their own programs a little better. 
And then if you slowly build trust like that, then you know, maybe after a while you can actually run some surveys on people. And then the next step might be you go to them and say, okay, when you roll out this new program, can we randomize it? So it's a slow process, I think, usually. Here, like I said, Jeremy did all the work and it was also, as far as I can tell, a very open and receptive organization, but that's not always the case. Okay, thank you. Um, so now let's turn a bit to the sort of ethics of conducting these type of studies. Um, and for this project in particular, you gathered data on sensitive topics such as intra-household violence. So I'm just wondering what, what kind of special precautions did you take when collecting this data? Yeah, so those concerns are extremely important, especially when you're working with vulnerable populations. And obviously, all of these studies go through not one, but several layers of ethical approval before they can be run. And so that provides a first layer of checks and balances to make sure that the questions are okay, that they've been vetted, and that people are comfortable answering them. But then when it comes to actually doing the study, it's very important to build a relationship of trust also with the respondents. And so our field officers get extensive training to make sure that they can put the respondents at ease. They make it clear to them that all the questions are voluntary. They don't have to answer any questions if they don't want to. Um, it happens to be the case that in this area, certainly, but also elsewhere, I think uh, domestic violence is so commonplace that people actually find it not very difficult to speak about. And in fact, my impression is in many cases that they find it relieving to speak about it. Um, but that's also not always the case. It can be emotionally taxing. And so then people can, can opt out. And if someone is really doing badly, we have referral systems in place that they can get professional help if they want to. Oh, that's, that's great to hear. Um, and another aspect of this ethics is um, the, the cash transfer. So in the cash transfer intervention villages, you surveyed households who did not receive cash transfers as well. You gather data on them. And some may view this as unacceptable. Uh, give directly that you've worked with previously and who are the largest NGOs working on cash transfers used to give households within villages cash transfers. Um, but now they stop doing that. So they only give to the entire village. Mm -hmm. um, so did you face any challenges uh, from local governments or ethical committees when, when proposing this study? That's also a very important concern. And there wasn't too much resistance to that. And it's largely because there's rarely enough money to help everyone. And then who should be, who should benefit and who shouldn't, it, you know, is much less controversial compared to the situation when you have enough money for everybody. In many cases, people are actually relatively comfortable with having randomization be the guide because they're used to even less ethical ways of allocating resources. So who knows whom and uh, you know who are you friends with and whom did you pay off? And the fact that that isn't a factor when the program is randomly allocated, that can actually be a benefit. And so we didn't face too much resistance here but it's something to watch out for and the jury's a little bit out on whether there are negative effects uh, in the long run of having been left out of a program like that we haven't really seen them empirically there's like hints of evidence here and there but the most recent studies actually suggest that 
the spillover effects are positive, if anything, both in economic and in psychological terms, because when some people in the village receive money, then that money enters the circulation of money in the village. And so it eventually ends up in the pockets, even of the non-recipients. And so for all we know, it might actually do a bunch of good things, but that's something that we need more data on. And so one motivation here was to, you know, to test that further and see whether these positive spillovers are really there or whether they're in fact negative. And so in this study, what did you find in terms of spillovers? So in this study, they were basically zero. In the case of the psychotherapy intervention, that's perhaps not surprising because the direct effects were also zero. Uh, in the case of the cash transfer, that's what you would expect if you know people don't really care much about what their neighbors are getting and they just live their lives. And perhaps the cash transfers were too small and or too few, few people in the village were receiving them in order for them to generate general equilibrium effects. So I think that's what happened with the cash transfers here. In other work that I've been involved in that was led by Ted Miguel, Paul Niehaus and others, we actually found positive spillover effects. But that was much larger infusions of cash in terms of local GDP. Right. But so before we wrap up the discussion on, on this paper, if you consider all things, what do you feel were the most challenging aspects of this uh, project? So I think one thing that we learned was that psychotherapy doesn't equal psychotherapy. And in particular, this program that had been tested and developed specifically for settings like this one and had even been deployed in a very similar setting in Kenya by the same NGO uh, and had worked in their hands previously didn't work here. And so that suggests that there's there are a lot of subtleties when you deploy an intervention like that. Um, whereas cash seems to be pretty robust. That's been shown to work in very similar ways across contexts many different times now. But these psychological interventions, they seem to be just a little more fragile. And so that was perhaps the biggest lesson that we learned. And then I think another challenge was that we learned quite late in the project, the partner organization was actually very good for most of the project, but then when they saw the null results of the program, they got very upset and accused us of having run the study badly. And uh, it was pretty disappointing to see their reaction. And so they wanted, they didn't want their name to be mentioned in the end, even though, you know, I think they actually did a really good thing by allowing the study to happen and exposing their program to this test. But that was a challenge towards the end that their reaction was so unfavorable. Mm. So is there anything that you would have done differently if, you know, looking back and based on what you said now? That's a great question. I think perhaps we might have spent more time piloting the intervention in the local context. We did, of course, pilot, but perhaps not as extensively as would have been required in order to really get it to work. And I think the reason we didn't was because we thought that nothing had changed. You know, this was the same organization deploying the same intervention with the same supervisors, even in the same country. So what can go wrong? But clearly things can go wrong. And so that's probably something I would do differently next time. Now I actually want to talk a little bit about um, another thing that you're quite famous for, and that is uh, the so-called CV of failures. So outside, and you've mentioned previously that it's a bit um, unfortunate that uh, some of the most influential work you've done relates to this CV or not. 
relate to, but you're kind of known for it. But what is your relationship to the to the kind of word failure? Uh, okay, that's an interesting question. I don't particularly have a very interesting relationship to failure. It happens to me all the time, like it does to many others. And it's not fun when it happens. And I try to learn to take it in stride. And I think I've gotten better at it. It helps to be professionally in a safe place. And so I sort of, I'm involved in a constant learning process of learning to accept failure. And how do you think the profession can make progress on this? On this sensitive topic so i think that's already happening a little bit i think people are becoming much more open to speaking about when they don't get a journal acceptance or they don't get a faculty job so people are i think trying to normalize it a little bit and making visible that it happens all the time to everyone even to successful people and so i think that's a step in the right direction and i hope that that will continue so I don't particularly have other wishes for what I would like to happen there. I think people are slowly starting to do the things that I would hope they do, which is to talk more about it and be open about it. Yeah, that's, that's great Great to hear. And uh, I think everyone, anyone who's interested can, can look up uh, Johannes' uh, CV of failures on his personal website, I believe. I think, I, and I was personally also inspired by that, so I, I think, some point, I'll also put up a CV of failures next to my normal CV to encourage this because you know you put up this rosy image of yourself and so much marketing that people don't see all the thousands of failures uh, that lie behind the successes. Of. Now, I'm also a bit curious as to your current work. What are the sort of big open questions that you are focusing on right now? Uh, so I've gotten very interested recently in international migration and specifically educational migration. And the question that's behind that is always the same. Like that's been the same for cash transfers as well as for psychotherapy as well as now for this program. And that's how do we best alleviate poverty? And I've come to think that migration is a really good way of doing that. And educational migration happens to be a really good way of making migration feasible because many high-income countries actually welcome educational immigration. And so I've started a program called Malengo that helps high school graduates from low-income countries apply for and complete bachelor's degrees in high-income countries. So currently, we're sending students from Uganda to Germany, but we're working on, on expanding beyond those countries. And we help them with financing on the one hand and mentorship on the other hand. And the hope is that that program will massively increase the incomes of the students who go, but also importantly, improve the lives of the families that stay behind, partly through remittances, so students sending home money, but also partly through facilitating exchange of information, uh, business opportunities, motivating the siblings and the friends to do better in school and then either migrate or not migrate as the case may be. So that's what I'm currently excited about. Mm, that sounds very very exciting indeed. Now, one of the things that I think a lot of people are interested in is um, like, like how, how do you become a successful uh, researcher? So is there some, what would be the single piece of advice that you would give to early career researchers trying to write a publisher paper, um, be it in, in within sort of your subfield or development or perhaps more generally? 
Uh, that's a difficult question. Um, I think the older I get, the more I learn that success is very highly correlated with persistence. So the ability to just keep going when something goes wrong and not be too deterred by setbacks and just keep plugging away at something. I think that's extremely valuable. And that's, you know, the, the famous thing about success being 90% perspiration. I think that's true. Uh, to a significant extent, even in research, where it's often thought that ideas are so important and ideas are really pretty cheap. It's the doing that really matters. And that's on the one hand, you know, a bit scary because it means you really have to put in the hard work. But on the other hand, it's kind of inspiring because it means that as long as you do that, like you don't need to be, I mean, of course, luck plays a role and talent plays a role, but the fact that you can compensate so well with working hard, that's actually really empowering. That means a lot of the outcome is in your hand. And I find that very helpful as a thought. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it reminds me of a, of a student I met in at UC Berkeley from Kenya. And he said it very eloquently. He said that um, hard work beats talent if talent doesn't work hard. And just sort of... Uh, yes, it. that's right. Yeah. Uh, very yeah, nice yeah. I totally um, believe it. Yeah. Uh, and with that said, I think we are wrapping up. Are there any final closing thoughts that you would like to share to the listeners of the Behavioral Science Uncovered podcast? Uh, no. Uh, thanks so much for the interesting conversation. It's very, very good questions. And it was fun to talk. Thank you. <laughs>